Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I walk with the key to hell. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at epiphanyligonier.org. I want to tell you this morning about a friend of mine from college who I considered to be among the most bold people uh, I know. He's, he's maybe one of the most boldest people I know. His name was Ben, and he was a few years behind me in school, and his parents were missionaries with Wycliffe Bible Translators in Papua New Guinea. And he came to college in the U.S., not growing up in the U.S., and he came to Grove City College, which was a pretty straight-laced institution, all things considered. And he showed up with clothes made of hemp and dreadlocks and smelling vaguely of patchouli and uh, zero tolerance for living an unthoughtful uh, life. And he made it his personal mission to boldly challenge all the conventions of what it meant to be a Christian because he had grown up outside of America. He was a Christian outside of America. Uh, Even though um, he was from a more Caucasian white family, he had a more thoughtful understanding of what it meant to be a Christian than just to sort of follow the Grove City College version of it. And um, maybe you know someone like this in your life too, uh, someone who is maybe a little countercultural. And on the one hand, you're like, come on, man, just this is too much. But on the other hand, you kind of admire them. Uh, that was him, you know. He was a vegetarian, uh, and, and you know, he th- he was that person in my life. He was the vegetarian. The only reason he wasn't a vegan was because the campus dining halls didn't really have a filling set of vegan options. Um, he refused to get a car, and he hitchhiked everywhere so he didn't contribute to global warming. Um, he only wore shoes when there was snow outside. And you kind of had to be careful with Ben because he was so committed to living an ethical lifestyle that he might embarrass you if you were out in public. He would hang out behind the local pizza shop, and when the staff would close the shop at night and dispose of perfectly good but unordered pizzas after hours, he would be the one to climb in the dumpsters and get them out. He would say, why let good food go to waste? And I have a vivid memory of us, a group of my friends, including Ben, heading to a local brew pub on a Friday night after classes, and when Ben arrived, he didn't order any food. Instead, when he got there, he looked over and saw a table of six or seven had just gotten off to leave and he went over and he scanned the table and he found a baked potato that hadn't been touched. He just reached over and palmed it, brought it back to the table and he started to eat this other table's baked potato like a hot dog. He was sitting there eating another table's uh, uh, baked potato. And he said food waste is a big deal as as sort of a chipmunk with um, potato in his cheeks. He had this big grin. And um, I'll never forget that because it was so countercultural and so bold to sort of say, you know, even this very conventional restaurant rule that we have is maybe not as Christian as we expect it to be. And my friend Ben had this core set of convictions. He was so confident in his convictions that it emboldened him to break many of these restraining bonds in the culture that he lived in. 
And today's sermon is going to be a sermon about boldness. And, you know, sometimes the preacher preaches to himself, and today's kind of that day, because when it comes to being uh, bold about proclamations about the Christian gospel outside our walls, you know, I am chief among sinners in that regard. But the boldness on display in our text today is remarkable. It is the unique aspect of this passage, and I want us to look at the boldness that St. Peter demonstrates for us today, and maybe we can take something away from that for our own interactions in the gospel and what it might look like in our own time to be bold. Our reading picks up uh, from last week's sermon, right? Um, If you were here last week, we went through this together. We talked about Peter and John entering the temple in Jerusalem. And this is about six or eight weeks after Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, it's not long after he's ascended into heaven. And the disciples have already received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Sunday in the book of Acts. And in Jesus's name, a well-known beggar comes along and is healed of his disability. He was 40 years old, he was lame, and he was begging outside of the temple for alms. But Peter and John in Jesus' name pronounce uh, a word of healing over him, and he gets to walk for the first time in his life. It's a beautiful story. And so as Peter preaches to a crowd that has gathered to witness the miracle, this well-known invalid outside the temple being healed, this crowd forms, and as Peter preaches to them, he preaches about the Christian gospel. He talks about Jesus' death and resurrection and the forgiveness of sins and the promise to restore all things. And he talks about how healing can happen in Jesus' name. And he talks about how this was God's plan all along from uh, God instigating a relationship with Abraham back in Genesis. And that's where we left off last week. But that's not the end of the story. And that's where our reading today picks up from Acts chapter 4. Because we learned today that Peter and John, they draw a crowd And it also draws the ire of the temple authorities uh, while they are preaching and teaching. Here's where our reading picks up today. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. Back in Acts chapter 2, friends, we know that at the Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 men were saved because of the work of the Holy Spirit that day. And so now in Acts chapter 4, because of the second sermon and the healing that this man experiences, the number has grown by 2,000 more. And we're up to 5,000 Christians now in this early church. But things don't look good for Peter and John, two leaders of this slowly growing church, right? Because they've been arrested by the temple guard for preaching of Jesus's resurrection. Remember that the Sadducees, that powerful priest sect that was politically influential, um, they hovered around the temple and were sort of metropolitan, cosmopolitan priests in Jerusalem. Uh, They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so when uh, Peter and John pop up talking about Jesus's resurrection, well, they're not very happy. And so after a night in the Huskal, Peter and John are presented to a panel for interrogation. And here's where our text continues on. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. Now, if you're a regular Bible reader, some of these odd Bible names may actually mean something to you. Annas and Caiaphas, these were men who not just um, are presiding over the trial of Peter and John. These were men who presided over the trial of Jesus six to eight weeks earlier. 
These were the men who tried Jesus to have him crucified. And the rulers and the elders and the scribes, this panel that is being convened to judge Peter and John is no ordinary panel. This panel is the Sanhedrin. It is the religious court of Judaism that has found its locus in the temple. These were the same men who gathered together to inquire of Jesus uh, two months earlier and who eventually sought to have him executed. These were the men who dragged Peter and John into custody, right? These were the men, uh, we're looking at the same thing. Peter and John are now in danger of experiencing what happened to Jesus just a few weeks earlier. Like, what did the Sanhedrin do? They said, um, well, Jesus, you're guilty of of blasphemy we think you are but we can't execute you so we're going to take you to the romans and get them to execute you on our behalf because the romans took away our ability to do capital punishment and so they go to Pilate and they say Pilate, you either execute jesus or we're going to start a riot it's the same people all the way down to annas and caiaphas who were the instigators of jesus's crucifixion They now have their hands on Peter and John. We've seen this movie before, friends. The story is looking very familiar. Things don't look good for the home team, for Peter and John, when this inquisition begins. And our reading continues on. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or name did you do this? Now, normally when people are under authority, the default setting is to move, you know, forward and obey. You know, for most people, the intuitive thing to do when they are sort of under a situation with power over them is to adopt an attitude of deference and meekness. You know, most people, when they're pulled over by a police officer, they change their tune pretty quickly and they're very polite and respectful. Yes, officer. No, officer. You know, here's my paperwork, officer. Uh, Most people, when they go to a restaurant, they don't snatch the baked potato off the nearby table because that's against the rules. They might get kicked out of the restaurant. Uh, Most people, when they go to stand before a judge, they do the same thing, right? Your honor, yes, your honor, no, your honor, and so on. Even Jesus himself was silent before this particular committee uh, as they leveled charges against him. But that's not what happens in our reading today. In our story today, um, you would expect maybe deference. You would expect, you know, well, you know, let me tell you, Pharisees, you know, you're not going to like this, but I'm going to share with you a little bit. That's not what we get in our reading. In fact, we get the opposite. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means that man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." So a couple of notes from this mini-sermon preached by Peter to the Sanhedrin here. First um, first note, three quick notes. First, uh, notice that Peter has a personally redemptive moment, right? Again, six to eight weeks ago in the timeline of life here, it wasn't that long ago that Peter denied knowing Jesus at all. This guy here, standing before that Sanhedrin, poking him in the eye, being antagonistic, assured of Jesus' resurrection, and, and full of this bold attitude— This guy, 
just a few weeks back, had denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed on Good Friday. And when Jesus was before this committee being judged two months ago, none of the disciples, Peter included, would stand to his defense. No one would get up and say, no, that's not true. That's not what was taught. They all abandoned him. And so now we have Peter, right, in this redemptive moment, standing before this committee and preaching in Jesus's name. It's like he's gotten a second chance uh, to defend Jesus before this committee, even if we might consider him a few weeks late. Thankfully, God worked all that out. Uh, but, But notice here this redemptive moment for Peter, that he gets to stand before this committee that condemned Jesus and defend and proclaim Jesus's name. So that's the first thing to notice. Second thing to notice, notice that Peter hits the same three notes we've been highlighting in our sermon series for the past two weeks now. This is week number three, right? What are the three components of the um, the message that he preaches? He talks about Jesus dying, rising again. Yes, he does. Check. The Sanhedrin as the body of sinners that need to repent, right? This Jesus whom you crucified, but God raised him up, which is a sort of pointed way of saying, yeah, Pharisees, you guys need to go apologize to God. Like that's there too. Check. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Saved, salvation. This language uh, in Hebrew to the Hebrew people would have meant more than just sort of personal salvation. It would have reflected God's intent to fix the entire cosmos. And so, yes, that's there too. The core of the apostolic message, friends, is here in Jesus, in the reading from Acts. Jesus died and rose again. He's coming to save and fix the world. So repent and receive forgiveness. These core ideas form Peter's sermon, even if it wasn't as explicit in this passage as it was in previous weeks. Third thing to note about this passage is that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and he speaks boldly. This theme of boldness comes forward. He pulls no punches in his defense today, does he? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that the same, that in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, gulp, right? By him, this man is standing before you well. There is zero defense. There is zero deference. There's no respect here. You guys killed the man who is responsible for uh, healing this invalid. And that's okay because there's repentance for you, but still you are the ones who need to repent uh, here. We have done nothing wrong, but you guys killed the Messiah. And so by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, right, Peter is this new man. He's not just, you know, confident. He's bold. He's not just Mr. Deny Jesus three times. He goes up to the people who orchestrated Jesus's execution proper and says, hey, you guys really messed up this one. You guys really screwed up badly. And that doesn't go unnoticed by the Sanhedrin either. After Peter finishes his sermon, here's what the text tells us. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Um, So even the text, you know, as we finish our reading today, it kind of ends with one more poke in the eye, right? The Sanhedrin says to them, stop preaching in Jesus' name or else. And they respond, You know, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. 
right? In other words, the committee says, stop talking about Jesus. And uh, the disciples, the apostles now say, yeah, we're, we're not going to do that <laughs> as they walk out the door, right? Go sit on a tack. Um, but the miraculous thing is, right, there are thousands of people who are saved, uh, because of this whole event. And by proxy, you know, the gracious God uh, brings more people into the system. And not only that, but this miraculous healing, not only does it bring more people into the church, but it also provides Peter and John with this cover because everybody knows the good news that was done in Jesus's name and they would see through any attempt by the, the Sanhedrin to roll that back or to try to unring that bell, as it were. And I find myself, frankly, envious of the courage that we see in our text today. There's a part of me, you know, that's really envious because I don't necessarily think of myself as a bold person. Uh, you know, I, there's a part of me that really likes mission work. And I feel like I'd rather fly across the globe to meet someone much poorer than me and speak to them about Jesus through a translator because I don't know the language. I'd rather do that than speak to my immediate neighbor about Jesus sometimes. Right? I'd, I'd rather have a conversation with someone on the other side of the world through a translator uh, and fly there for a week and then fly back. I'd rather do that than talk to someone who lives down the street from me sometimes. And um, maybe um, you understand that too. Like I'm just not simply that bold by nature outside of the walls of the church or outside of the four walls of my home. And so if I took, I, I, I'm envious of the level of chutzpah that Peter has in our story. I really am. And maybe you feel the same way. Maybe there's someone uh, in your life that you know needs the Christian gospel, but you're stuck trying to figure out how to make that happen. And you're looking for opportunities to talk about matters of spirituality. You're trying to thread the needle between giving someone good news and off and, and giving them a, a chance and an opportunity to, to discover and meet Jesus and learn about the Christian gospel, but also not going so far that you alienate them and turn them off about all the spiritual things uh, and, and fracture the relationship, right? Um, that was a real common theme, in fact, when we did a church-wide survey back around Palm Sunday asking this question about, um, you know, evangelism and talking with our friends and neighbors and family members about Jesus, right? Um, this is a real common theme. Many of us in Epiphany are anxious about sharing our faith uh, in a place and time, not because, you know, there's a theocracy out there that's going to work against us to have us crucified, but because we're scared of damaging our relationships with our friends or our family or our coworkers. I mean, that's, that's a fear that many of us in this room have today. But what's remarkable is that, you know, after Peter's sermon, and I think this is a key piece of the reading, and I'm kind of kicking myself for not putting it in the bulletin this week, but I'm going to tell you about it right now. After this part of the reading, after Peter and John are released, after all that courage and fortitude to tell the Sanhedrin to go stick it where the sun don't shine, as it were, after they tell the Sanhedrin this, the last part of Act chapter 4 is they come back and they meet with the other Christians who have been praying for them this whole time. And, well, he, they tell them about the Sanhedrin's threats. They say, listen, the, the Sanhedrin's after us, church. And so what do they do? They pray. Um, it's not in your bulletin, but I'm going to read the prayer for you. This is what they pray. They said, Lord, look upon the threats of the Sanhedrin. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretched out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It's a great prayer because they're praying for boldness and they're saying, look, 
This time, you know, one of the reasons why we're still alive after that encounter is because of a healing that the Lord did. And that was something that gave us boldness. But we're not bold all the time. And so, Lord, give us boldness. Because boldness, when it comes to preaching the gospel, is not something we muster up on our own. Um, as if Peter and John um, have this big microphone drop moment and they're full of swagger uh, and um, they walk away feeling like they're a million dollars. Um, the text says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit when he answered the Sanhedrin. And it recalls one of Jesus's earlier teachings. This is back from Luke 12. Jesus said this, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about what you should, uh, how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So, you know, good on Jesus for, for seeing this pattern happen in advance and, and giving the disciples instruction. And so lest we think that Peter and John muster up this courage on their own, this boldness that defines our reading today from Acts 4, um, right, that boldness is not bootstrapped or practiced. Um, it's not confidence in gifts or talent. The boldness in our reading is a work of God. It's just like, it's in the same category as the invalid's healing that started this whole deal. Um, that both the healing of the invalid and the, pro the proclamation of the gospel to the Sanhedrin, uh, those things are both an act of God at work. And I think this is good news for two reasons, which I'll discuss and then we're going to conclude today. Um, first, this is good news because it takes some of the burden off of our shoulders and, and puts it onto God's shoulders about uh, sharing the gospel with those around us. Because if God needs us to be bold in our proclamation of the gospel to affect his will in the world, um, right? not only can God make that happen, but he will make it happen. Uh, and, that, and that's good news. You know, it, it disabuses us of our own self-importance in the communication of the Christian gospel. And so neither you or I are charged with perfection in the communication of our faith to one another. We are instead charged with faithfulness and will let God handle the rest of the details, the boldness, the content, the, the circumstances in which that gospel is preached. So I find that comforting. And, and I find that to be a burden that's, that's not quite so heavy on my shoulders. And the second thing I want to point out from our reading today is um, that there are people, as Peter and John sort of understand and intuit in their reading, there are people who need the Christian gospel in our lives. And like Peter and John, we are invited to double down in prayer uh, for those people and, and their circumstances. This is why we're doing this big two-for-two two prayer push in our church right now, right? Two people or families who don't know the Christian gospel, who are not plugged into a church, uh, we say prayers for them that they would come to know the Christian gospel and be plugged into the church. And we're also praying, of course, that if God wants to use us, he can use us to make that happen. Uh, the pattern is not a machismo of gospel preaching where Peter and John are sort of walking away, high-fiving each other for telling off the religious elite. They're not, you know, putting on their glasses and saying, deal with it as they walk away. Um, they're not being arrogant. Um, the pattern is one of prayerful humility, knowing that God loves our loved ones even more than we could hope to or imagine that we could love them and trusting he's going to find and bring back the sheep of his own flock. So this is a word that God gives boldness and our job is faithful prayer. And so I say to you today with all boldness I can muster, friends, that Jesus Christ has died and indeed has risen. And he's coming back to judge the world. And I tell you there is forgiveness of sins to anyone who messed up. 
because that's ultimately the root of any boldness that we're going to have in sharing our faith. If I say to you today, friends, be bold, or if that's what you're hearing today, I have not communicated well. What I want you to hear, to fr- hear friends, today is keep the faith. Trust that in those moments when you need to be bold, the Holy Spirit is, will be there to make it happen, and trust that God will give you the words to say. And so as we conclude our time together today, I invite you to pray for opportunities to speak those words and watch as the grace of God manifests itself in your life and the lives of those you love. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday, a thief. On Sunday, a Pennsylvania.